0: I think the mission, you know, sort of for the startup is very simple. Can we create pathways out of poverty for people in low-income communities?
1: Welcome to Cause and Purpose, the show about the leaders, innovators, and change agents working on the front lines to solve some of the world's greatest social challenges. Our guests today are two of the three co-founders of Karya.IN, Manu Chopra and Vivek Sashadri. Karya is taking an incredibly innovative approach to economic development in India, providing high-wage jobs to India's working poor, and working to upskill them into even higher career prospects that align with their interests. Karya is a recent graduate from Fast Forward's Nonprofit Accelerator program, and they're definitely an organization to watch in the years ahead. Hope you enjoy. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Excited to speak with you.
2: Same here. Very excited.
1: Honestly, you know, the first question that I have for you guys Caria is a nonprofit focused on AI, but the roots of the organization and and your story really begins uh, with personal experiences with poverty. Can you share a little bit what it was like growing up in India and what led you guys to want to build something like this?
2: Sure. Absolutely. So uh, I grew up in a place called Shakur Basti, which is one of the poorest parts of Delhi. I think growing up in a place like that in hindsight, it was one of the greatest blessings of my life because it brought me up and close with some of the biggest issues we faced as a society. And I was very lucky that I had like incredible parents who protected me from the chaos around me, right? So I, even though I grew up in one of the poorest areas in my city, I was still privileged in the in the love and compassion that I received. So often I like to say that. My life is a product of irrational compassion. The the preschool that I went to, the high school that I went to, they were all on scholarships. Like my last four years of education, like in my high school basically was all covered by the government. I routinely was invited by other nonprofits to get access to their services and think deeply about uh, how I should be living my life and what sort of opportunities I should be applying for. And then I think that that was this extremely impactful period right? where, of course, I saw firsthand how damaging poverty can be, but I also saw firsthand the incredible work done by nonprofits. right? So I think both the desire to create a nonprofit and the desire to tackle poverty comes from my childhood, uh, right? For me personally, it's such an intense desire that I feel like for me working on anything else always felt like a waste of time because it was almost existential, right? Like it takes an average low income Indian seven generations to make $1,500. Right. So just to afford the laptop that I'm speaking to you from, it would take an average Indian seven generations over 200 years to do that. Right and there were definitely moments growing up where i felt unlucky right that it took my family three generations to get to that milestone and you read the statistic and you're like oh we are lucky right we are extremely lucky it took my family less than half the time it takes an average low income income indian right and i think that for me that was really really profound understanding that as difficult as i may have thought i had it i was still among the luckiest people in the country. And I think that when I look back at my childhood, it's with this lens of gratitude for all the challenges that you know we went through and also this deep sense of purpose, right? Like I, I was maybe put through that so I can be in a position to give back and in a position to sustainably tackle poverty. So nobody else has to go through the childhood that I went through.
1: I got to spend a little bit of time in India, but for folks that haven't, been there to see it themselves. It's really, it's really hard to picture. That disparity, I think, is is somewhat shocking and not not necessarily common to other impoverished areas in the world. You know, to start something like this and, and go down the entrepreneurial journey, there's really a deep emotional hook there. So I wonder if you can describe this this further.
2: Yeah, no, there is, right? And I think that there are definitely challenges growing up in, in a busty, which is what we call an informal settlement uh in in the urban side of the country i do have to say the basti i grew up in was not as stark as as the one you're describing which is in bombay uh, which is dharavi but i think that the challenges were similar in a way because a basti is a transitionary space right like so people come people go right it's 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 predominantly daily wage workers and 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 and, and local uh people right people trying to do something for themselves uh, small things like going for a walk was not something that we did because there were no parks around right like taking the bus to go to the school being a long distance away small things like that right um to to sometimes seeing more difficult things right so one of my first memories in life is hearing about uh, the death of Uh, of, of, of a woman in the in the community who was burnt alive by her husband's father in a dowry death and and I heard about this like I mean the fact that I remember it clearly meant that it left an impression on me but the person who did it used to sell bread to me like he was my bread shop person and I remember my mom telling me to go pick up bread from the shop person and I did. And I heard that he had gotten arrested, and I asked my friend, like, why did, why are they arresting uncle? And I heard that he had basically killed his daughter-in-law in a, in a, in a dowry death uh, incident, which was very common while I was growing up, right? So, one, I don't know why someone told the child that, uh, and two, it clearly made it, I mean, the fact that I remember that sentence, um, and this must have been 15, 20 years ago, right, the fact that I still remember it, Meant that it left an impact on me. I, I, I think I think the biggest thing that it did was just like you know it's it's so in your face the the inequalities of life, right? Simple things like the way women's access to public spaces was restricted because of how unsafe it was. Uh, from the way that they were just there were just no public places that people could occupy, right? Uh, to the way that my friends in school would bully me because I smelled a certain way because I came from the bus seat, right? And like I distinctly remember I went to a school that was run by a trust, which meant that it was a very, very good school. And thus it attracted people above my social strata, like, you know, like lower middle class kids and middle class kids also went to the same school uh, because it was just a good school. But because I was coming from the Basti, sometimes I would smell a certain way because the gutters were always open. And I remember being bullied about that. Now, in hindsight, that's like foolish. Right. But as a kid, like that's the biggest thing in the world. Right. Like, 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 oh, no, like, how did they know? Right. I remember, for example, for the first, like, like, you know, five, 10 years of my school, not telling anyone I was from the past, instead using a name of a neighboring region that had a better social reputation. Right to now where i just embrace it and and i feel strongly that if i'd grown up anywhere else in delhi in one of the nicer parts of delhi i would not care this deeply about poverty i would not care this deeply about people just being left behind and 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 and, and i do have to say like my life itself was very comfortable because of my parents right they really protected me from all of this and whenever real world (laughs) slipped in with, with you know like some incidents like that it left a mark in not a bad way, but in a very profound way that enabled me to see what really matters. Right. Uh, I, I often tell my parents that, you know, if I didn't grow up in the buffy maybe I would be building, I don't know, like a Snapchat for puppies, like, you know, the rest the rest of the tech sector. Right. Like I think it was a almost like a reality check and and, and I do I don't wanna exaggerate how difficult it was for me because I don't think it was. I just got to see. Uh, other people's difficulties. See that at a very young age in a manner that helped me understand that for me, a meaningful life would be one where I get to serve the people that I grew up with, right. And also just be very clear, right, like that that you know my family because of how hard my dad worked and how hard my mom worked, we were able to get out of the bus, seat, but that's not normal, right. Most of my friends are still there, right, like. I was the first person from the community to go to a college in the U.S. I was the first person from the community to go to the to my high school, which was you know like uh, sponsored. Uh, so a lot of like really lucky incidents happened um, that got me out of the basti, but those are not normal, right? and and, and that um, realization somehow I had seen more social mobility in the first fifteen years of my life and most Indians have seen since independence, was was very real, was very raw, and, 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 and it inspired, uh, it, it definitely makes the work that we do feel even more important, right? Because if we don't do this, who does, right? And and, and in a way, I'm a product of the best of India. Our incredible nonprofits, our incredible uh, trusts, our incredible government services, the welfare schemes that allowed me to be where I am today. And for that, I'm very grateful. But I am keenly aware that that's not the normal story.
1: Vivek, I'm, I'm curious about your background too. Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and and what your experience was and how that inspired you to take on this kind of work?
0: Actually, you know, I grew up in the city called uh, Chennai. You know, My life until my graduate school was actually pretty comfortable, uh, should I say, you know, very smooth. I never thought about world problems, societal problems our parents ensured that you know both me and my brother had a uh, had a good education you know a comfortable life in general and as i was you know completing my phd i went to carnegie mellon for my uh, phd in computer science as i was finishing my phd is when i was having this for want of a better word like an identity crisis in terms of what did i want to do next You know, my original goal behind doing a PhD was, hey, I'll I'll come back to India and then, you know, teach in uh, an institution, become a professor and, uh, you know, continue doing whatever I was doing for my PhD. Then I was chatting with my co-graduate students, you know, who were also going to graduate, or my peers, uh, you know, in grad school. A big realization, you know, uh, hit me. First one was, you know, most of us were sort of very comfortable in life, right? I mean, I would, I mean, in terms of any metric, I would argue we were at the top five percent, let's say, of the of the of the world, right? Economically, socially, you know, even by way of all other, uh, you know, comforts of life, maybe even like top one percent, right? But the realization was, we were essentially working on making each other's lives more efficient, right? I mean, I did my PhD in computer architecture, which essentially means, you know, can we? I mean, my my work essentially involved making computer systems go faster, right? Your smartphones, your laptops, your you know, cloud systems and whatnot what were my peers doing they were essentially making my life more efficient right how can i sift through my email really fast like you know beat away all the spam or you know beat away emails that are not important again i'm not trying to reduce you know the good work that they are doing but in general this was my realization right i mean this was the way the world was operating right the people in the top 5% were essentially making each others lives more efficient and everything else was sort of uh, you know, trickle down. This was 2016. Uh, you know, also the time when the uh, U.S. national elections were going to happen, uh, and uh, you know, Bernie Sanders sort of rose to uh, you know fame during that election. I was deeply inspired by his thought process. Many people claim as you know, his policies are impractical, uh, but I think you know there is definitely something to be said about the way the world is operating today. And right? I think poverty, in some way, the root cause of almost all the problems that we face uh, you know, in the world today. Right? I think when people have like, basic standards of living and good opportunities in general, I think it will, it will result in a more a society with fewer problems in general. And uh, I guess that's what, that's what hit me. Right? And then I realized, okay, this is, I mean, it gave me clarity as to what I wanted to do. I moved back to India and uh, found a home in uh, Microsoft Research you know, where I had amazing colleagues who, were also, who also had a very similar mindset. And, uh, you know, you asked about India and I mean, you mentioned, you know, in Mumbai, how the uh, really poor people and the really rich people sort of, you know, coexist in the same in the same place. I think that is something that I found very different from the U.S. I mean, I, uh, you know, I used to live in Pittsburgh, you know, in the neighborhood that I lived in, I would hardly find anybody, even a homeless person in some sense. Right. But I think the situation is very different uh, in India. I think in most cities you would actually find a huge disparity in the income levels of people huge disparity in the comforts uh, of people that sort of hit me really hard you know to me you know i think when we walk down the roads i mean today as we speak i live in chicago and you know even here when I, mean, I walk down the streets and sometimes you see homeless people asking for help in some sense for most of the rest of the world they are invisible right i mean we walk past them and would like to imagine that they did not exist I mean, of course, there is also the struggle of, hey, how am I going to help this person? I mean, I could give them a few dollars and then you know, it's definitely not going to solve their problem. That pains me in some sense. Right? And, and the question that I keep asking is, hey, what is the solution to that problem? I guess our Manu, Manu's hope and my hope is, you know, whatever we are working on, putting us in the pathway to find that solution uh, or the framework uh, that will significantly mitigate this problem, you know, if not, if not eradicate it completely.
1: When did you guys realize, like, hey, I'm not just going to be entrepreneurial for myself or, or go get, you know, stick with the job at Microsoft or something on a comfortable salary, but, you know, take a chance, have an entrepreneurial journey, but but one in which, you know, the financial upside wasn't as great potentially, but, you know, you'd really have a massive impact for, for people that you might not actually ever even meet.
2: For, for me personally, I think it comes from like day 100. I don't know. I don't want to say day one, but but it comes... Uh, pretty naturally right I think my my mom and dad are both extremely socially driven socialist people I think what my mom did a very good job of saying is you know whenever I would get bullied in high school that it is not a judgment of who you are it's a judgment of who they are right and 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 I think that thinking deeply about like what causes poverty right poverty is not um it's, it's not a natural phenomena. It's a man-made disease. People are poor because someone has decided that it is okay that they're poor, right? It is not a judgment of how hard they work or, or how, how talented they are. It's a judgment of the of, of the system, right? And, and I think that for me, I think I've been always pretty clear that I want to lead a life of creating impact sustainably. Unlike Vivek's, much better experience at, at Carnegie Mellon. My thing at Stanford was just one of shock because like I remember the first day on campus, the discussion was how will you make your first billion dollars? Like that was an actual discussion on the very first day discussion in the dorm and I, I just was like, I won't like, it was not even an aspiration ever because I just, for me, the, I mean, the big dream would be like millions of people getting out of poverty. Because of something I was contributing to, like, that would be the dream. And that has always been the dream, right? So I think I think that, thankfully, it's very deeply rooted. And then, again, like, the people that, you know, I've surrounded myself with, people like me, are so pure in their desires to create impact. It's so unadulterated, right? Like, that it doesn't feel like a compromise at all. Like, I feel like people doing for-profit businesses are compromising on the quality of their life right because you still have to work hard like like i don't think any business is, is less work right but it's it's a it's it's so important to find a community to create impact in it to feel that you belong to feel that you are making people's lives better uh and and they are making your life better right like it is it is the most like in a way I, I I Vivek and I often chat, like like doing what we are doing, like like you know, like building impact led organizations is sometimes the most selfish thing you can do. Because it is it is the easiest way to be happy. Right? Like 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 you're so connected to your communities and like I wouldn't know how to live without that. You know what I mean? Uh so so I think for me it's 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 it, it doesn't feel like a life of any compromise because you just gain so much, right? Like like we were just on the field, Vivek and I in a lovely place called Chamrajnagar, uh in Karnataka in southern India. And and we just started work, Mike, in this area like a week ago. And we've given like maximum two, three thousand rupees, which is like sixty dollars, like like maximum, uh 50, 60 dollars maximum in, in, in these in these areas. And people were talking about how that much money in just that week had like really changed the way changed the quality of the life for that week and and what they were thinking about. And 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 we were both just I mean I came home so like so driven to work harder, right? And I'm like, okay, let's let's do more. Let's find them more work. Let's do more because it just it is such a privilege to see the direct impact of what you're trying to do. And these are very early stages at Kane. But 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 you know like like I'm I'm very aware that the, the life that Vivek and I are on is, is, is going to bring us, yes, a lot of challenges, but also a lot of joy. That's so, so, so I think for me, the values come from the parents, uh, from the part of society I grew up in. And then I've been very lucky to have had incredible mentors. right So even at Stanford, uh, professors like Mehran Sami, who just wrote this phenomenal book uh, that critiques the Silicon Valley way of thinking. Um, and and it's called revolutionaries, and it talks about how do you actually build a revolution in the in the tech sector. Um, to people like Eric Roberts, who brought morality to Silicon Valley, uh, with you know CS 181, where he talks about like how do we as technologists think about building a better world. To in India, people like you know Dr. E P J Abdul Kalam, who was our former president who um, was my childhood hero, and I was so lucky to spend time with him. All of these people, I, I I look up to them because they were leading lives. They have led and are leading lives of impact. And I was just like, that's the dream. That's what I want to do. So I've, I've been very lucky in, in the mentors I've had.
1: Vivek, in some ways, your your path to building a tech-based nonprofit was a bit more direct, You know, being at Microsoft. But Manu, you had a bit of a winding road. You're at the Chopra Foundation. There's something called Project Mahatma, <laughs> Project Karuna, doing luxury travel stuff. Like, you know, in the end, kind of what brought you back to this sort of purpose-driven center?
2: I graduated 2017, studying computer science, came back to India. I've only done one job in my life, which is working at Microsoft Research for a year, uh, where I was so lucky to have a wake as my manager and boss and he was the best manager ever in fact our password on all things karya oh my god this is not a podcast but it is not the case anymore <laughs> but, but our password for most things is vivek is the best manager ever like that was the password this is how much i love vivek and i'm pretty sure it makes someone comfortable if i had to say this but, but but it does like i i i said that um and i was so lucky to you know have him as a mentor and, and, and still am and of course as my first manager I did that for one year, and it was really lovely to work at Microsoft Research and, you know, to start working on Karya. I basically spun off from Microsoft Research as a consultant, which they're so kind to They were so kind to let me do, and basically continued working on Karya for the next four years as we you know, did research and trying to prove that the model worked, and we'll come to that. But while I was out of Microsoft Research as a, as a full-time employee, I was thinking of other things that I wanted to do, right? And I think that finding different ways of expression, right? And I think all three of the things that I did were different ways of expressing the same thing, right? So what I mean by that is like karuna, for example, Karuna is the Sanskrit word for compassion, right? And and I felt like my travel across the country. I was I've been to over a thousand villages across India. I've traveled to most states. I get to travel a lot because of the work we do at Karya, It it really changed the way I thought of my own country, right? And 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 often I felt that I would enter a place with notions of what that place could be and be completely shocked at it being the other way. Right. I remember the first tribal region I visited, and I just realized oh my god all these thoughts that people had told me growing up they were all wrong right you know like one of my favorite people david Pryor, has this quote he says travel is fatal to bigotry and you just realize very early on you know nothing right and i had forgotten like things i'd heard in my childhood i was almost parroting that like i was almost like being like oh yeah we should work in this community because they don't have internet you go there oh they all have internet what are you saying sir right like oh we must go there because they need a help you go there no they don't need your help right they've been doing really well and they have incredible nonprofits there that, that are serving their own communities right so you realize very early on that you know nothing right at, at stanford when i was teaching uh, cs plus social good which is these tech for good classes that i would teach uh, we used to this do this thing called assumption storming where Stanford kids would get partnered with a project partner somewhere in the world. So I remember this distinct case where the project partner was from Bangladesh. And it was a bunch of American students who were going to volunteer for six months and work for this partner and build technology for them. So great, easy stuff. Before we introduced them to the partner, I said, I want you to write on the wall every assumption you have about the people you are serving. And in this case, they were serving young kids in Bangladesh, in Dhaka specifically. Um, and they wrote down assumptions. Oh, their schools might not be good. Oh, the smart they might not have access to smartphones. Oh, internet issue might be might be an issue. Oh, electricity might be an issue. And we stormed every single one of them. Oh, that's not true. They have excellent internet. Oh, that's not true. Smartphone penetration in Bangladesh is seventy percent. Oh, and we did this before them at the partner because it is not the partner's role to teach you about the country that they're serving. It's your role as a servant to do your research, right? And I think travel did the same thing for me, right? And, and I realized how critical it was in helping me understand my own country, right? Because before leaving, I mean, like, like before going to Stanford, I'd only been on one flight in my life, and that was to go to Ahmedabad to meet Dr. Kalam, the former Indian president. And that's it. Like, I had, like, like I went to Bombay after coming from Stanford. You know what I mean? I went to, I went to Bangalore. Like, I, I hadn't seen any place in India, ever uh you know like i saw i would seen more of the u.s than i'd seen my own country right uh and that was of course a factor of of, of you know like uh financial means but but i felt travel just really changed that and my thought was i wanted to change that i also just hated the way foreigners traveled in india and i still do like i i feel like someone should be working on this not me uh because it's such a it's such a voyeuristic way of traveling such a beautiful country where you where you just see the poorest areas, or you see the richest areas, and there's just, you know, and and you just have no context. And I felt that we had to profile stories of growth, right? Stories where, like, yes, this community was poor, but a bunch of them got together, built nonprofits, and fixed this. And and now this community is doing a lot better. Let's visit them, right? So instead of doing, like, almost like poverty porn, doing, like, growth, uh, like, you know, like, like, you know, showing people, right, like, like, like growth is possible, right? And, and I always feel like sharing positive stories is a lot better way of getting people excited about the community
1: than sharing their worst stories. The fact, whose idea was this? Did Manu bring it to you? Did you sort of bring it to him? What's what's the genesis of, of Karya? And can you tell us, you know, what's the mission? The original goal behind
0: the research project was, hey, you know, can we provide uh, people in rural communities with uh, digital work and i mean this was the time when ai was sort of growing exponentially i mean it was it was it was getting straight into all aspects of our lives simultaneously in india smartphone prices were plummeting i mean there were just new players in the market you know who were adding to the competition thereby reducing costs uh, the same thing was happening to the data connectivity as well you know lots of new players in the data world and so the question that we were asking was hey if people even in low income communities have this connected device in their hand can we actually provide them work through the device and uh, you know pay them for completing it essentially creating a a source of supplementary income for them and i mean this would be a game changer right? because you know that's the power of digital work where you know uh, people uh, the, the work provider and the worker uh, need not be physically co-located Right, which is which is which is the situation in uh, you know almost all other types of work. Which this essentially meant you know we can essentially connect people in remote communities in India to the global AI data ecosystem and uh, and that's that's a, that's a huge uh, that's a huge industry right. So that's how it started. I want to say you know the transition to uh, a startup. I think while it was there in both Manu's mind and my mind, I think we would have. Uh, Periodic interactions about hey you know what is what is the exit strategy I mean it was a research project at Microsoft Research right I mean like what is the exit strategy for this project and uh, I think it was it was it was almost an accident uh, where Microsoft Research was generous enough to say hey you know uh, we'll give you a four hundred thousand dollar grant to SHP scale I mean they saw the impact that the idea uh, was having and the potential behind uh, you know the idea and then you know they gave a seed grant to essentially scale up the uh, impact right and that was that was the genesis for the startup i think the mission you know sort of for the startup is very simple can we create pathways out of poverty for people in low income communities one big realization that we have had in the past you know one of years of being a startup is uh, you know giving people a critical source of income is just the first step and right? i mean it, it, it doesn't end there and uh, so we essentially have a larger agenda, uh, you know, for the startup, which is, you know, provide them with a source of income, and that's, uh, you know, the digital work avenue is uh, the major vehicle through which we will we will we will do that. And once people get a critical source of income, you know, uh, uh, looking at further development, upskilling, connecting them to, you know, more sustainable, longer-term employment opportunities.
1: You guys have the, you know, very lofty goal of moving 100 million people out of poverty by 2030 I mean, that's i love those sort of big vision things i mean clearly there's a lot of work to get to that point but practically speaking today like what what is the work of carrier and i'm also curious was that the vision initially as you guys came out of microsoft you know did it pivot to this uh based on lessons learned you know in actually building the organization so
2: what carrie does is very simple right basically every year tech companies spend over a hundred billion dollars collecting training data for their ai and ml models and yet this work is not accessible to rural indians right so what we have done is built a smartphone application where our workers can log on and do digital work for some of the biggest tech companies in the world right so let me walk you through an example right microsoft would reach out to karya and say hey we want to collect speech data in an Indian language, because we're building a language model, we're building Cortana, in, in that language, something like that, right? Um, Karya would be then asked, say, collect a thousand hours of speech data in Marathi, right? We would take that task, we would divide it into micro tasks, and then distribute it to our workers in rural India, via their smartphones. The workers would open the Karya app, they would see the work, and they can start recording their voice on the phones. Once they're done with that, They would distribute the work, they would finish the work, they would give it to Karya, Karya collates it, validates it, sells it to Microsoft. Microsoft pays us, we pay the workers, right? Very simple sort of system, right? But for the simple task of reading sentences in your own local language, right, we're able to pay our workers at least 20 times the Indian minimum wage, right? And that is very powerful, right? For example, one of the first people we ever worked with, Reshma, she came from a community that had no internet, that had no electricity, right? Um, it was in fact her first time even using a smartphone, right? And when we when we gave her her phone, um, and yet just within 30 minutes of training, she was you know successfully recording sentences in her local language, um, and you know like because of our high wage rate, she was able to become the first girl in her village to leave her community, uh, and then she became the first girl to attend college right? And, and the money that Karya gives enables critical life outcomes, right? Because um, the fundamental thing is that money is a cushion from reality, right? And, and in India and in many places around the world, reality sucks for, for most people, right? And I think having that extra income allows you to think about what else do you want to do in your life, whether it's a college or education and stuff like that. So those are the kind of outcomes that we are able to enable right we started this conversation by telling you that it takes an average indian seven generations to get to 1500 dollars a karya worker even if they only work an hour every weekday so i'm making it as simple as that even if they only work an hour every weekday they're able to reach the same like income threshold in less than a year right so we are able to dramatically accelerate social mobility sustainably right Like we are able to like accelerate it from seven generations down to one year. And in a moment of time where India has something that we call the demographic dividend, which is the average age in the country is 25. Most of us are young people. We cannot afford a situation where it takes this generation, seven generations to get to $1,500 because then we lose the dividend and we lose the one chance we have to get the entire country out of poverty, right? Which is why Karya is so important right now that we have to get all of these people, these hundreds of millions of people, right? To the $1,500 threshold, which is the threshold for middle class in India. So they, they can have the income that they need and the money they need to cushion themselves from reality and build their own social mobility ladders. Right, so that's the larger vision behind Karya. The way we envision this, the way we act on this is by connecting our workers to the global AI ecosystem Um, And we offer different types of tasks, like speech data collection, image annotation, video annotation, text annotation. And historically, all of this work has happened in call centers, in physical call centers, where workers would have to commute to these regions, leave the villages that they come from. Uh, But in our case, we have built an Android application that can do all of that, but on their phones. So they don't have to leave their villages if they don't want to, and they can get paid some of the highest wages in rural India today
0: just
1: from the comfort of their home. Hi, Mike here. I'd like to take a quick time out from the episode to let you know a little bit more about a project we're working on called Altruis. There's a deeply held secret in the nonprofit space, which for some of you may be just a little bit controversial. And that is philanthropy does not equal impact. The challenges faced by our global community are more complex and urgent than ever before and for philanthropic funders who care about impact. For those passionate about really moving the needle on important social issues, there's very little information available to help guide the decision-making around their investments. That's where Altruist comes in, by seeking out the best, most innovative, and promising high-impact solutions. By combining top-quality impact measurement, evaluation, and analysis with insights into social good organizations that focuses on strength and sustainability rather than overhead. Altruist helps funders of all kinds, Philanthropists, family offices, foundations, and businesses direct their resources to the programs and organizations best equipped to solve the challenges they care most about in the regions of the world they're most interested in supporting. With personalized recommendations, engaging multimedia storytelling, seamless funding execution, Altruist levels the playing field, creates unprecedented efficiencies, and most importantly, drives funding to the most impactful social good organizations around. For more information, check us out at www.altruist.org. That's www.altruous.org. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. You made the comment that India is a graveyard of nonprofits, especially upscaling nonprofits. I'd love to hear your thoughts you know, about that specifically, but also about the culture of philanthropy and, and impact work in India, because I'm sure it's very different than here in the states. Absolutely. So I think
2: that looking at the nonprofit space in India, I will reiterate that I don't. I don't think we'll be able to do anything that we do without the nonprofits, right? So we have over two hundred plus nonprofit partners. That's how we actually find our workers, right? Like we trust them to identify workers in the communities that they work in. That's how we're able to scale. And I think that the specific type of nonprofit that is highly rooted in the communities that whose problems they're solving, that stuff works really, really well. Right. Um, and are able to work with them to get our community members, like lots of income quickly. Right. So I often say, I don't think of car as a job. I think of it as societal wealth redistribution. Right. We're literally taking money from some of the richest companies in the world and using it to move some of the poorest people in the world out of poverty. Right. And that's the vision. Right. Once we do that, we are focused on skilling them to get them to a resilient livelihood right and that is a different strategy than what most companies have attempted which is often you try to skill people and then give them money we give them money using skills they already have which is as simple as speaking their native language and after they have made the money we then skill them for something else that they might want to do in life right and the reason for that is what we just mentioned, which is that there are so many skilling nonprofits in the country, and this is specifically regarding skilling nonprofits. And it just doesn't work and it doesn't work because the market is not there. So nonprofits might be excellent in skilling people to speak English or skilling them to you know like do embroidery or skilling them to do handcraft work. That's fantastic, right? But somebody needs to be building those markets as well. And what happens is you end up having tens of thousands of people being skilled for something attributing hope to a skill and then not getting the outcome. Right. And I always tell the story of my first time in Bihar where I was speaking with a young woman and I was talking about how she said, so how, how have you made your money? She just asked me like point blank. Right. And I was like, Oh, you know, like, I like know how to code. So during my college time, I had some internships and, and I made like, you know, like money and, 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 and she's like, you make money through coding through computers. And I was like, yes. And she said, don't talk to me about computers because this other people came here and I spent, you know, five years teaching my son how to code and he has, still has no job. Right. And, and the issue isn't coding. The issue is that the opportunities available to a kid in Bihar is very different from the opportunities that were available to me at Stanford. Right. And I think people, understood that but that's such a large-scale systemic problem that I, I i think it's just very difficult to act on right and which is why we felt so strongly that let's start with giving them money for skills they already have because it is very hard to scale hundreds of millions of people right we have over 800 million people in india who are unemployed or underemployed you have a situation where the bottom 30 percent of india economically own slash contributes contributes zero percent of a GDP, right? And P. up the incredible journalist at Paris at Public Archive of Rural India, has phenomenal literature on this, right? But in situations like this, one thing that P. Sainath taught me was you have to look at skills they already have and monetize them at scale, right? Um, and that's what we do. Once we do that, we agree. Like we don't want, we don't think of career as full-time work. We don't want like anyone to be doing career work forever. you want them to do it till a certain economic threshold. After that, yes, we do have to skill them. But we think of doing it after that. Uh, and that is exactly why, because I've just seen so many skilling nonprofits fail, not just in India, in other similar regions around the world. Because it's, a, it's a wicked problem, right? Like How do you skill hundreds of millions of people at scale when markets don't exist to do that? You have to do a lot of market building. And I think that for us, we have three parts of karya karya earn, where the goal is to get people to that economic threshold and give them critical supplementary income as soon as possible karya learn where we skill them in skills they want to learn and that we see marketing languages for and karya grow where we handhold them to a job right after karya right and for both learn and grow the word that we are using is hyper local scale Right? Which is in India today, you have these large scale platforms, like an unacademy, like Coursera, or things like that, right? Which are just disseminating information and have this very techno-utopian belief that if I give, they will come. They will not come, sir. Sorry. Like, it doesn't work like that. You know what I mean? You can't just say, YouTube has all the education. Why are there uneducated people, right? Like, it it does not work like that, right? Uh, It's a very techno-utopian thought. So, we have that. But we do have those players. Let's be honest, they're good. The content is actually good. That's not the problem. It is just the dissemination, right? And then you have amazing hyper-local nonprofits, right? Which work in specific regions of the country who know what their communities want, who are the, who've done great work. I mean, I feel like running a nonprofit is so damn hard that it is just an excellent filter of people because only people who will do it are so committed to the cause that they're willing to, you know, like, like go through the journey. So our thinking at learn and grow is like, can we do hyper-local scale? right can we identify say 50 communities 100 communities where we work with incredible nonprofits on the ground that aren't able to do what we are able to do and then build tech to disseminate um, information and stuff like that and i do have to say learn and grow we are at a very early stage and we're also figuring this out right but i think that india has a lot of nonprofits. That is absolutely true right i think we have there's some statistic and i i, I like on India has of the highest non-profits per people ratio in the world. I think we have over a, over, over a couple of million non-profits that are registered officially in the country. And yet, in, there is not a single Indian non-profit that has gotten to the stage that, say, Bangladesh non-profits have. Right? In fact, Bangladesh per person income is higher than that of India. And a big reason for that, victory of Bangladesh is given to organizations like BRAC and Grameen Bank, and rightfully so. They're phenomenal organizations that operate at a scale higher than any single nonprofit in this country, right? The largest nonprofit in India has an annual budget of around... Let me quickly do the math on that. It, it, it's, around, it's around 200 crores, right? Uh, which would be around 30, 40 million dollars, right? that is not that big compared to India's largest for-profit companies, right? And these numbers are from the Nudge Institute, which which is a phenomenal center on revitalize, phenomenal institute that is revitalizing the nonprofit sector in India. And one of the things that they say that nonprofit sector in India is missing is speed scale. And you know, like like that that sort of thinking of like, how do you scale your work? How do you do it very quickly? And, And how do you have the highest impact possible? And I think what the impact sector in India needs is is more support. Uh, like Nudge has been phenomenal. Like they're the Indian fast forward in a way. Uh, and they have over 100 nonprofits that they have supported and incubated. We are one of them. And any nonprofit that they're supporting, I should not talk about Karya because it's like a self serving thing, but any other nonprofit that they're supporting is world class. It truly is, right? And it has the potential to be the next Grameen Bank or next track because they're receiving mentoring that wasn't accessible in the Indian nonprofit sector until recently. Yeah, but that's why I think that India has so many nonprofits that haven't worked. I don't think it's because of a failure of the leaders. It's it's, it's again a failure of the system. And there are ways to bypass that. And, and there are many intelligent people thankfully working on that.
1: Are there big philanthropists in, in India the same way that there are here? Like, you know, how is that the same? How's it different than what we'd expect here in the States?
2: See, Vivek and I are very lucky, right? Because of because of the colleges that we went to, we have access to some amazing people in the country. I have personally found that the most powerful and putting powerful in double quotes, people in the country are very excited to meet like young entrepreneurs, like they're extremely accessible. Again, this is a very privileged take because of our like, you know, like the the institutes that Vivek and I have occupied. We have found it genuinely very easy to get meetings, uh, to talk to them. I have found them to be extremely generous in their time, in their insights, and willing to learn and willing to know that like they might think. For example, we had a I, one of India's most prominent leaders, um, you know, who, who comes from a different generation than I do, once told me, and this is in 2017 when I started working in Kalaya, right? And and he just said point blank, you won't find hundred thousand good people in rural India right? Like to, to employ, forget 100 million, right? Uh, because I gave him a big feel on how um, we don't need to train them. They're already like incredible people. Uh, and he said, this is a very naive take. You don't understand rural India. And, the, you know, like once we started our work, uh, I mean, he was very polite. I do have to say while saying that and, and and just being like, he was very, very like, he was like, I don't want you to waste your life. I remember him saying that, right? And, and uh, six months later, we had reached like a few thousand workers. And, like another like you know like we we you know we got to a stage where he was like like you know we were we're reaching more and more workers and when we got to like thirty thousand workers he, he was like oh my I was completely wrong right like like times have changed these people are incredibly talented and he was extremely generous and, and I think that willingness to learn and unlearn is is very high among the Indian philanthropist is my personal experience right so I was very happy. Like to be very honest, we haven't raised much money in India, so maybe that's why I have such a romantic uh, notion of, of of philanthropy. We have been very lucky to get uh, our, our money that we raised from from Microsoft and from the Gates Foundation, and they've both been phenomenal. Uh, I think Microsoft in India, and Vivek can speak more about this. is It is incredible, like like what they've done for us. We would not be here without them. Uh, I think the last time we spoke, I said my life is like like I just received. Irrational generosity from so many amazing people, and I don't know why they're doing it, but
1: I appreciate it. I'm curious about Microsoft support, but I'm also curious in the broader sense, what it's like working with Gates Foundation and some of these larger institutions, what they ask of you, you know, what it's like gaining their support, but just as importantly, I think maintaining that relationship over time.
2: I mean, they're incredible. I mean, like, like, Mike, like, and I'm not just saying this because this is a podcast, like they're genuinely incredible. Like, I'll give you an example, um, I was on a call and I said, oh, we'll run this by for your approval, um, and they said, approval? Like, why would we approve anything, right? Like, like we work with you, you, t-. and I was like, oh, and it's such a, like, like, you know, like, growing up in the Indian education system, like, everything needs to be approved by a higher authorities. there's a hierarchy in place, right? So Stanford was the first whiplash to that, where they're like, everyone's equal, or suppose like, you know what I mean? And, and, and I think that both at Microsoft and uh, Gates Foundation, they fundamentally trust all their partners. I think if you ask any of them, they'll only have nice things to say because it's such a place of trust. And uh, what do you need to get to where you want to be? Because we are happy to provide that. Um, I have not had, like genuinely speaking, even a single not 10 out of 10 interaction with any of those uh, players. And, and, and that I, I I know sounds surprising, but it's true. Like they're just, like they're institution builders, right? And, and and I think that they're really the best at what we or they do and we've been very lucky. Vivek, what do you think?
0: I think, you know, their primary goal is impact and solving problems at scale. And I think from that point of view, the you know, amount of trust that, you know, they've placed in us I again being such an young organization is just, you know, incredible. And uh, uh, of course, you know, the Gates Foundation project is is just, you know, like uh, three months old, it is. It is just exciting that you know they, they, they have placed the trust in us to uh, you know execute again some of the really challenging problems. I mean, trying to find solutions again. The goal here is not hey you know you have impact you know with uh, uh, you know this two million grant and it ends there. No, I mean the goal is to find you know solutions that will scale and uh, you know have that larger impact, and so it doesn't it doesn't end there. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely exciting times for us, and I think having these partners has been extremely critical for us. You know, especially being a uh, you know tech nonprofit. I mean, like Manu mentioned, it can it can seem lonely, uh, you know, at times. Whereas you know, like if you're in a, if you're in a for in the for-profit world, you can raise investments and then hire the top people, like sprint towards some uh, some some goals. But I guess you know. Uh, in, in In the nonprofit world, I think having such uh, great partners is extremely
1: critical. It's nice to have that trust at the outset, but you have to you have to maintain it, right. so what what sorts of things are you doing? what What information are you feeding back? How do you interact with them so that you maintain the high level of trust that they initially had with you? Yeah, yeah. no,
0: I guess we can we can talk about individual organizations here. I mean, if you think about the Gates Foundation, I mean, like I said, it started in January essentially, right So it's been just a few months old. But, you know, we have like monthly updates, you know, where we tell them, uh, I mean, of course, it it all started with an elaborate plan. I mean, we we give them, hey, here's how we are going to, you know, execute this project over the next two years. But even then, you know, we have these monthly updates where we tell them exactly what is going on. I think think even in the first few months, I mean, uh, you know, I wouldn't say things have gone uh, completely the way we have expected, but again, that's where, you know, being transparent with them about, hey, these are the challenges that we are facing. Uh, here's how we are applying to address those challenges. And having that iteration uh, with, with the partners, because I think they understand. I think, you know, like these organizations have been working in the societal impact space for much longer than, uh, you know, we have been, and, uh, you know, they obviously understand the variety of challenges that organizations like us still face on the ground in accomplishing whatever we are aiming to do. So. Uh, from that point of view, that that uh, honest interactions, being transparent about the issues that we are facing, and uh, you know, giving them that regular progress updates, I think you know that's that essentially what keeps the trust going. And of course, at the end of the day, I think you know it'll it'll be in how well you know we have accomplished our goals. I think that 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 will always be the bar that uh, you know people will use, especially if they want to provide you with repeat grants or you know continuing to work with you. Yeah, there again, again, you know. Our intentions are pure, and we have been working as hard as possible to, to, to ensure that we are doing the right things. So, fingers crossed.
1: How do you guys measure impact? What, what are some of the metrics you guys look at? How do you gather that information? How do you contextualize it properly and, and report it back to your funding organizations?
2: We are actually just about to change how we measure impact. So, so ask me again in a month. But how we, how we currently measure impact is looking at the amount of money we are giving to people, the amount of hours they have to work in the platform, we pride ourselves in paying a minimum of $5 an hour for a worker, so we want to make sure that our workers are paid at least that, right? So tasks are taking longer, because they've gotten very complex. We want to increase the wages accordingly. So that's something that we track. Uh, we, of course, track number of workers on the platform, that sort of stuff. Initially, we track the dialects that we cover, the languages that we cover, uh, uh, we, of course, track qualitatively how they spend the money, the anecdotes and stuff like that. But we are launching a new m impact portal, where we're going to be tracking a lot more and, and a lot more of these stories. And neither Vivek and I are, unfortunately, the best people to talk about it. It's actually our co-founder, third co-founder, Safia, uh, who joined us a year back, uh, who has over a decade of experience working at the UN, World Bank, like all these top-crazy impact talents in the world. And she joined us a year back to basically improve how we track our impact, um, and 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 she'll be a great person to talk about it. But she's imagined this portal that tracks worker satisfaction, that tracks you know worker happiness on a, on like a like a weekly level. Uh, it tracks their demographics, like it tracks how much money they are making before, how much they're making after, things like that. That is one thing that we've done. The second thing that I actually want to talk about, uh, which is interesting to me, is is as we are building, thinking about what it truly means to be worker first. And, and a slight segue from your impact measurement question, but I do think it's important to say is, so at Care we have like five teams. We have uh, a sales and marketing team that basically reaches out to B2B clients. We have a technology team, which builds the tech, right? We have a design and storytelling team that, that, that builds the design of the app and design of all collateral and stuff like that. We have an impact team and we have an operations team, right? And you look at this and you're like, oh, this sounds great, like fantastic, right? And the impact team's goal is to make sure the impact is happening. It's being measured. It has amazing people. They're, they do research. We, you know, we have an amazing pilot going on, amazing research project that just ended with MIT and JPal, uh, which is super exciting. We have another one with Stanford. We're evaluating the amount of work we're doing. And then we have an operations team, which has you know like people with decades of experience working on the ground. But I was describing this to a mentor from the nonprofit sector. And he said, you know, Manu, what the problem is? The problem is your operations team's ultimate boss is the client, right? Because the client, whether it's any tech company um, or whoever, they will decide if data is good. So that's your operation team's ultimate boss. That doesn't mean the operation team doesn't care about workers. They do. But at the end of the day, their, like, one metric is, is is whether the client accepted the data or not. Is the data of the highest quality or not? That's what they care about. And you have an impact team, which is writing grants, which is doing the research. And believe it or not, their ultimate boss is not the worker either, it's the donor, right? And you risk having a situation where no one in the team, there's no team in within the larger organization whose ultimate boss is the worker, right? And he said, that's one of the things I've seen go wrong in companies, right? And his suggestion was to actually hire someone for a sixth vertical whose only metric is worker satisfaction, right? And their job is to work across the teams, go to the tech team. The workers are not happy with this. You need to fix it. My scores are dropping. right? go to the operations team. You cannot push them to do this because the scores are dropping. Go to the impact team and say, we will, you know what I mean? Like just be the chairman for the workers. And, and it hit me and we are very early stage. We are like only you know, 20 people. we were like, Oh my God, this is all right. And this will be a huge problem uh, going into the future. And again, this is why I have, ha, like having mentors help. And we got on someone, her name is Nea. She's over ten years of experience leading like labor interventions on the ground, like leading worker first interventions on the ground. And in and it's been a month, she's month and ten days she's since she has joined. And it's already game changing, right? So so I think like, you know, there's a old adage, like, you know, like old story, like what you can't what you don't measure measure doesn't get control, doesn't get, you know, like like doesn't get, you know, like like uh, it's not a part of your story, and and even though we keep on saying we're a worker first company, uh, it took the mentor to telling me to tell me that. And I was like, "Oh, that makes so much sense." Right? And I think that um, that's that's something that we feel we have to keep on doing at every stage of the company. Right? We are at 30,000 workers today. We will be at 50,000 workers with the Gates Foundation investment in just two three months. Right? We will end this year with 100,000 workers. We have to scale our teams to ensure that this the, the worker experience is as good at hundred thousand as it is at thirty thousand.
1: That's some incredible growth. It's exciting. What other systems are you putting in place to support that kind of exponential scale to where you can maintain the same quality, the same culture, the same level of impact that you've had at this level at at that kind of scale?
2: I think we have to figure that out, honestly, right? Like and I think that being like, just starting with being honest that like this is going to be a challenge, right, helps, right? Um, I think that, thankfully, in terms of finding workers, we don't think that'll be an issue because, again, the nonprofit sector in this country is amazing. You can be in any village and you will find a nonprofit that has been serving those people for 10, 15 years, right? For example, Chamrajnagar Nagar, again, that I brought up earlier in this conversation, we had never worked there, but within three days, the operation team found the nonprofit that, you know, that they aligned with. Got the work started. Got the first round of payments done, like just within three years. And so we like love how quickly we're able to enter new communities uh, and do it well with nonprofit partners. So I think I think that that is is something that we like in terms of finding the right people. We rely on existing human forces, and I think like just a small segue here. Both Vivek and I are, are products of the the school of these two incredible people, Kintaro Toyama and Bill thies uh, who are both researchers in the impact space. And, and, and Bill, of course, has uh, runs one of the most impactful organizations in the world called Everwell, which does tuberculosis uh, adherence. And then there's Kintaro who wrote this book called Geek Heresy, which every person in the social sector should read. Um, and the subtitle of the book is Rescuing Social Change from the Cult of Technology uh and it's a phenomenal book it's extremely controversial but I think it's 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 a must read and one of the things that the book says is that you have to amplify existing human forces right as technologists we have this desire to you know like like get rid of the middleman and like you know like just reach straight to the customers and, and that makes sense and and, and it serves the value in in many places but that should not always be our default choice right we have to understand Why do the middle players exist? If they exist for a good reason, as we sometimes do in, say, the agriculture space, right, or in the nonprofit space, we can choose to celebrate them, to work with them, to amplify these existing human forces, right? And I think having read that book and coming from that school of thought and having been taught by those two incredible people, very early on, Vivek and I were very clear that any way we get to 100,000, 1 million, 10 million, any number of these workers will only happen with non-profits that have been serving these people for longer than I was, that I mean existed. right? Like, like You know, like the non you work with have been serving communities for 40, 50 years, right? And they know what these people want, right? They know who to work with and stuff like that. So that's one way we make sure we stay impactful, right? Which is we co- refuse to compromise on that. And while the scale like 30,000 to 100,000 sounds very exciting, we do have people in the ecosystem who think we're going very slow because we could have chosen to be at that scale, we will be by the end of this year, two years ago, right? But we want to do it well, right? We want to we want to make sure that our systems work and stuff like that. And then the other systems, which is like tracking worker satisfaction, doing large scale impact monitoring, bringing in people who have been trained to do, do this. That is the biggest priority this year, right? Because what we really want to do is make sure that, like you said, CARE is as impactful at 100,000 per worker as it has been at 30,000, right? and i think the other part of that is just you know like expanding our marketing and storytelling efforts so we can get more work for our workers right because that is the biggest like the biggest thing that we get in any village we are working is when are you coming back right like when can i get more work um, and 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 that is 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 something that we just have to work like you know really hard on because in the communities that we work, career remains the work of choice because it is easy. It's really easy to just open a phone and get paid more money than you would get paid for doing physical labor. Right. Uh, and, and the biggest thing that people tell us is it's easy, I can do it anytime. I'm just speaking my own language. Indians are a really linguistically proud people, right? Language and culture are uniquely intertwined in India in a beautiful manner, right? So people feel a lot of pride that they're teaching computers how to speak their language, right? Which is how we can raise the idea of building a language model, right? People feel pride over the fact that, oh, I'm going to teach my computer how to speak Marathi, right? And they should, it's a, it's a lovely language, right? And I think that, um, that all those factors make it a very exciting work opportunity for them. But I almost feel like for Vivek and me, the ball is in our court now, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, like they have, like our workers have proven they have done this work. They can do this work. They've proven they can do it well. Uh, they've proven that they, they, that they can do it so well that tech companies in the world are willing to pay for it. It's now our job to go out and take this incredible story of how incredible our workers are and bring work for them, bring opportunities for them. right? And, and I think that that is a responsibility that both Vivek and I are very aware of. And that's what drives us, right? That's what drives us to work 18 hours a day. That's what drives us to reach out to companies where we believe they're doing work that our workers can do and our hope is that we're able to do it enough that we have amazing stories that we can share with the world stories like neshma that i shared right and and i think that a positive story a good story gets the world excited and and we can bring more work to them right like i mean the ai market itself is just 100 billion dollars here and this is just one market. and and of that 100 billion only 125 million dollars comes to india not a rural india all of India right now, so there's a huge opportunity here. I, I think I think that's what really excites us.
1: As you pursue this goal of 100 million people, do you envision being able to hit that with the current model, or are you looking ahead to specific pivots at this point to help you through those inflection points to get to that ultimate goal?
2: I think there'll be many pivots. Right? Like like like, there always already being many pivots, right? Because I think the the tech sector moves very very fast, right? So two years ago. Vivek and I were all into red speech and monologued speech data collection, because that was the biggest thing. Uh, then, a year ago, it was conversational speech. Then, six months ago, it was call center speech. Today, it is reinforcement learning with human feedback. That's great, right? And, and I think that that's one of the things where the pro of being in the tech sector is that we're able to pay the minimum wage of $5 now, right? Which is, is, is extremely high in India. Right uh, like most Indians don't even make minimum wage, which is you know like like significantly lower than that. So I think that that is a pro. but the con is we have to keep innovating, right We have to keep changing the platform to support new forms of work, what tech sector wants will keep on changing. And I don't think it changes every year. I think it changes every few months, right? And, and so far, because we have been lean and agile, we have been able to deal with those changes and, 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 and thrive in those changes in a way right um so i think there'll be not just one pivot there'll be like thousands of pivots uh, to get to any goal forget 100 million even to get to 100000 by end of this year there'll be many pivots right and i think we embrace that right because because that is uh, that is fundamental in what we do right and the other thing that is happening Mike, that we haven't touched on is the value of indian languages is increasing dramatically right what's happening in india is that people are getting richer faster than they're learning english Right. So suddenly they're becoming um, customers of Samsung and, and Microsoft, and Google and Apple, because they're buying their devices. And these people who only speak a local Indian language, they want to deserve to and need to speak to these language, these devices in their language. Right. And unfortunately, typing in Indic languages is still extremely difficult. Like, I mean, to the point that even I don't do it, I don't know of anyone in rural communities who prefers to type. Because there's so many accents and consonants and all of those fancy like you know like additions to the language and everything, so we would prefer speaking to these languages, right? So 2017, when Vivek and I started working on Karya, uh, a single hour of Uriya, a language spoken in Eastern India, would go for around three dollars. So if you if you spoke in Uriya for one hour, I would pay you three dollars. Today, the same hour would cost you at least thirty-five dollars, right? The hour has stayed this, the same, like nothing has changed. The language is the same, but the people in that, like the value of the la- economic value of the language has increased. And this is happening outside of Kara. We have nothing to do with this, right? But if we don't exist, companies will get Odia data from the richest people in Odisha. nothing wrong with that either. That's fine. They'll get it from physical call centers, right? But us coming in and saying, you know, hey, who else, you know who else speaks Odia? Some of the poorest people in the state also speak Odia. Can we use this opportunity, which I do think is once in a lifetime, right? And bring this work to them and move them out of poverty, right? Because nowhere in the world, I believe you have hundreds of millions of poor people who all have a smartphone, a bank account, an internet connection, and their languages have economic value all of a sudden, right? These key factors that make Karya possible are very hard to replicate. Right, Uh, and I think that that is extremely exciting, Um, and then again puts a a timeline on Kale, right? Like we have to, we have to time ourselves with the rise of the language, so we can grow
0: with that market. You know, based on the new metrics that we have created for ourselves, it also changes the way you know we operate uh, in in some sense, right? I mean, if 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 I just measured how much work I have provided to people in aggregate then we wouldn't worry about the individual worker anymore right it would it would be you know trying to just maximize the amount of work that is done on the platform and i think just changing that metric to worry about individuals saying hey you know i want each person to get to this economic milestone then it makes us you know think a little bit harder about opportunities repeat opportunities that we can provide them so that they can get there so i think uh, you know, lots of clarity in the last one and a half years. And I think, you know, lofty goals sort of, uh, you know, help you uh, uh, think about, uh, you know, these these issues. I think, you know, a colleague of mine very rightly mentioned, you know, if you want to go to the moon and, uh, you know, if you're thinking of building a ladder, then you're never going to get there, right? (laughs) So in some sense, I think that is the mission for Karya, right? I mean, I think we already know that data work is 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 empowering and it can move people out of poverty i mean i can go and you know set up a uh, 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 a system where you know i provide sustainably work for let's say 10,000 people uh, you know through data work right but i guess the question that we are asking at karya is drastically different you know can i use the same data work to actually move uh, millions or hundreds of millions of people out of poverty uh, you know rather than just a small small set of people and what does that pathway look like, right? I think uh, uh, from that point of view, it's still an experiment. I think it's a very grand experiment. Uh, and uh, uh, initially, I mean, you, you spoke about scale. I think, you know, I think if we use the first few years to identify the solutions that actually work, the solutions that are actually scalable, then, you know, the the ecosystem is there. You know, I think there are organizations which are, you know, looking for solutions in this space. I mean, there are a lot of organizations that are you know, uh, you know, that are involved in moving people out of poverty, I mean, uh, you know, including organizations that would just, you know, give money to people, you know, uh, uh, for, for, for nothing, right? Just give money to people so that they can be moved out of poverty, right? I think if we have the right solutions, I think we can tap into that ecosystem to achieve the scale that we are looking at, uh, you know, achieving.
1: Right? Can you elaborate a little bit on how you guys think about some of those feedback loops in terms of taking that impact data the field research data and, and using it to evolve the organization itself one of the very first piece of advice you know that
0: I received you know when then when working on you know uh, like problems in this space is have a metric to measure your success right uh, because uh, oftentimes what happens in the societal impact space is you know you're doing something, and you are seeing anecdotally something good happening on the ground, and you know often that that is satisfaction enough, you know, for you to say, okay, no, I'm doing good work, and then I let me just continue doing whatever I'm doing, right? But without a concrete, you know, metric for success, it is just, uh, you know, impossible for you to uh, actually know whether you're doing, you know, good or not, because you know, like people on the ground are very nice, right? So even if you give them a uh you know uh, like a poorly designed solution uh you know they won't often say it in your face because they know your intentions are to help them and often that feedback is insufficient for you to know whether you are doing good work or not right so i think that was one of the very first sort of lessons that i received you know when beginning to work in this space uh you know of uh, social impact which is have a concrete metric of success and uh, uh, i think for us you know like i said the metric essentially helps us guide us in achieve, to achieve our goals right? i mean in this case it's not just a metric for us to present to some other organization you know so that they give us more funding or whatever it is a metric that we use to define our own success and you know if 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 you're not doing well on those metrics you know it means we are failing uh, as an organization in, in our goals right so i think that's why i think it, it has been it is i think uh, uh, both manu and i have uh, like high levels of clarity that you know Karya is not a data company right? even though that's one of the one of the main products or services that we provide you know our goal is not to be you know a a a, a data company right for us uh, you know data work is a vehicle to achieving something else uh, right and uh, and you know we want to find a, a solution that helps us achieve our goals right and and like you rightly mentioned in the beginning of this call i think you know uh, manu could be doing something Completely different in his life. I mean, like you said, you know, building, uh, you know, was was it uh, Snapchat for puppies? <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, you know, I could be doing something very different in my life. And the only reason the two of us are doing this, and the only reason everybody in Karya is actually doing whatever they're doing, you know, is because we are all aligned towards that goal, right? I mean, every I can I can very confidently say every single person at Karya right now could potentially be uh, somewhere else, probably earning a lot more. Uh, uh and leading a lot more comfortable life and uh, you know it's it's uh, uh it's, it's not a, it's not a rosy path right i mean working in this organization i mean there's uh, lots of struggles there's lots of times where you have to you know go beyond you know uh, i mean you could be tired but you know there's someone on the ground who has a problem you know you've got to fix the problem so in that sense it, it is a difficult journey and the only reason we are going through this difficult journey is because we are aligned towards the goal and if i don't have a metric you know <laughs> that tells me whether i am achieving the goal or not then you know uh, that would be completely counterproductive right and uh, in some sense because you know we are inherently uh, uh, you know so focused on those metrics it becomes actually a very easy job for us to you know uh, give that report or feedback to our to 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 organizations that fund us saying hey you know this is how this is how we are doing because you know i mean we want to keep ourselves accountable to everybody in the organization right uh, forget forget funders i mean even if you don't have external funders i think you know the only way we can uh, make progress is by tracking the right
1: metrics besides poverty if you weren't doing carrier if you weren't working on poverty and workforce development wh- what do you think is the most important challenge facing humanity right now
2: snapchat filters for our puppies <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. is actually working on ai communication for puppies it's it's a real thing i mean
2: I would be honest and I would say lack of compassion, right? Like, especially among the powerful, not understanding that that there are factors at play that have made our lives significantly easier than, than those that we are trying to serve. And I think that I find myself very often in conversations with very powerful people, uh, where they're saying things and I'm just like, you just like, like there is just like, like you have no idea how hard it is for someone to, 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 to exist. Uh, forget. Uh, so I, 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 think, I think in many ways the rise of xenophobia, the rise of Islamophobia, the rise of homophobia, a lot of stuff that we are seeing uh, in India today is just a lack of compassion, right? And and one of the many reasons why I love working in our villages is that they're fundamentally compassionate places, right? I was just in a village in Bijapur um, where we do a bunch of work, um, it's, we, we were in, I was in a village of it was a hundred families or something a little over hundred families and only two Muslim families and I was there on the day of Muharram. Uh, Muharram is a, is a Muslim Muslim uh, festival and everyone, like every single person, every single person in the village celebrated it with them. They threw a party for them. They all raised money together. To throw a party for the two muslim families in the community no no cameras no there was not done for show. it was how those how people are right and vice versa they were they they told me that during diwali the like everyone celebrates they are the ones who actually raise the most money it is one community one people as cheesy as it sounds it is that and that's what you know we have seen in every village we work in and then i come to our cities and i just hear the worst things the vitriol the hate and not just against a certain religion or against a certain sexuality or certain gender, just in general, just a lack of compassion. Like, like, why do you have to assume anything? Right? Like, like, we just don't know. Right? And and I think just if the world was kinder, was compassionate, um, and I think human beings are compassionate by default, right? Like, it is systems that make us uh, not compassionate. And I think that um, generosity is a drug. The more you receive it, the more you give back, and and I think we've been lucky, which is why probably we can feel this way. But but yeah, for me, I would say lack of
0: compassion. Vivek, anything to add? I mean, I'm currently living in the US, and I think most of the world is going in the same direction. I feel, which is everything is divided down the middle in some sense, right? I mean, I'm just super surprised by how so many states in the U.S. decided, like, so close to the 50% mark, right? Uh, and and uh, and <laughs> you know, it's just it's just amazing that there are so many issues that divide us. It's becoming more in 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 today's world of social media and misinformation and fake news and whatnot. It's just becoming so difficult to have an informed conversation, you know, about these issues, and then you know, even reach a stage where we just agree to disagree, right? I mean, it's uh, it doesn't end there. I mean, it's like, hey, you know, I'm right, you're wrong. I mean, this this has got nothing to do with poverty, right? I mean, yes, I mean, as much as U.S. has a lot of people living under poverty, it, I mean, this this is a problem even amongst the rich.
1: I always learn a ton from the folks that I interview. Uh, and I'd say you guys especially. Like, I, I've learned so much. From speaking with you, I've really uh, enjoyed it. Hopefully, this is the start of many more great things to come. Thank you for the time and the insights, and uh, for really embodying that—embodying uh, an abundant life uh, rather than one of financial wealth, because they're very much not the same thing, as you know.
2: Absolutely, absolutely, and thank you so much for this opportunity, and thank you for hearing us. Means the world, and once again, yeah, like, 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 I think you're incredible, and what you're doing is amazing, and thank you so much for listening to I mean we are just two people trying to do a good thing that's it right and, we, and I, I mean the word I always focus on is trying and what I can guarantee you is we are trying our hardest, right uh, and I think, I think I think that is just the most important thing right? like it's an, it's and an, 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 we feel very grateful that's, thank you
1: that's our show for this week thanks to Manu Vivek and the entire team at Fast Forward for helping make this one happen You can learn more about Caria at their website, caria.in, and in the show notes at causeandpurpose.org. If you enjoyed the show, please follow, subscribe, or leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and share the link with any friends or colleagues you think might find it valuable. Our next guest is a nonprofit leader who quite literally lived the very challenges he's seeking to address, the founder and CEO at Comfort Cases, Rob Shear, a product of America's foster care system. Rob knows firsthand the challenges, emotional and otherwise, faced by kids and young adults moving through that system. At Comfort Cases, they're committed to helping those entering the foster care system not only survive, but truly thrive. Until then, Cause and Purpose is a production of Altruist.org. On behalf of myself, Manu, and our entire team, we thank you so much for listening and look forward to speaking with you again soon.